นโมตัสสะกัวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะกัวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะกัวทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนวสังเมื่อเดือนมีนาคมเมื่อเดือนตุลาคมฉันได้พูดเกี่ยวกับเรื่องเกียรติ Kindness, patience, modesty, and trying to bring attention to some of these these aspects of the Buddha's teaching that get overlooked in our perhaps our our greedy, overly zealous, uh, inspired effort and practice. We We basically miss a lot of the qualities that the Buddha talked about in considerable detail, and and the great teachers um, exemplify and and would encourage us towards. Yeah. We're so busy trying to do this willful mindfulness business or have insight, whatever that that we overlook the benefits that come from. Softening, being gentle, being kind, and a lot of the qualities that lead to an increased sense of inner well-being, an inner strength. In fact, the strength that comes with a sense of self-respect or well-being. Busy trying to <clears throat> have insights into the four noble truths, and we're already miserable as hell. It doesn't actually. It doesn't work. We just get worse in practice, and it can go that way. So I've tried to bring attention to these some of these other qualities, and and this evening I'd like to consider together uh, the spiritual faculty, the the area that the Buddha taught about: uh, faith, sadha, trust, confidence. And again, it doesn't sound like you know. Diamond-cutting wisdom or insight, or profound realization. Say, faith. I mean, you know, that's for beginners. Well, um, if we think a little bit more about it, maybe we realize there's another way of viewing faith, and and hopefully come to realize what a what a powerful, uh, what a profoundly powerful resource faith, trust can be. I found it very inspiring and very helpful uh, many years ago. In fact, very, very early on, when I first came across Ajahn Chah's teaching, one of the things I read was a, a transcribed, translated uh, notes of some teachings by Ajahn Chah. I think they were done by Jack Cornfield. Um, I'm not sure, but in this very short talk by Ajahn Chah, he described how there's different levels of faith, different types of faith. I thought faith was faith. You know, it's what you do. The way I was brought up was, you know, faith is the same as belief. You know, you have it and you're good. You're part of the club. You don't have it and you're out and you're in trouble. And that was my experience of, of faith. But the way Ajahn Chah talked about it is there's different 
if you like, different frequencies of faith. You know, faith is something that, that changes as we practice. In, 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 in a similar way, one could talk about light. You could talk about diffused light. You could talk about refracted light, manifest very differently, or concentrated focused light. The same element, but it's manifesting in very different ways. And So Ajahn Chah talked about initial faith, verified faith, and complete faith as being very different. And I'm not sure that those were the words he used, but that's how I remember uh, the point that he was making, that there is this um, quality of heart that could be described as initial faith that we all have. And we wouldn't be here if we didn't have it. We, have, we all have initial faith that there's, there's, uh, there's something out there. We have an intuition that there's something out there. It's worth doing. It's worth looking. Uh, whatever inspires it, whether it's, it's um, you know, coming across something we've read. I know my very first, I think if I remember correctly, my first kapow moment with Buddhism was, was reading a book by Alan Watts, The Way of Zen. And, and uh, I don't know, maybe I was 20 or something at the time, and 19, and, and you read there's just one or two sentences in that book, and kapow, yeah, this, this, is, this is different. This is, this is worth doing. This is worth looking at. So then you're busy running around, you know, trying to find out how to do this Buddhist thing, this enlightenment thing, this whatever. So the level of faith, at that, at that level, uh, inspiration, uh, initial faith, we are very, very busy looking. It's kind of, it's, if you say, it's, it's, it's goal-oriented. It's somewhere out there that we're going to find something that we haven't got. There's a particular kind of struggle that we have, a particular way of meeting the struggle that we have. And, and that faith, that confidence, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be looking. We wouldn't be doing anything at all. Um, but then Ajahn Chah said there's another level of faith where he talked about, or my word for it would be verified faith, where we do some practice <clears throat> or something happens. Maybe it's not even practice. Maybe it's just a spontaneous shift, but it's definitely a shift. Something shifts and you say, wow, that's new. This is not just a momentary kapow, Ooh, let's, let's look into this, but this is where something shifts and you start to see life differently. This is new. It's an experience of something very new. And what I'd uh, like to consider this evening is that, that faith changes at this level. If, we, if we're still operating on the assumptions we had about faith at the initial level, well, that's very unfortunate because once we've had some sort of an experience, some sort of opening, that introduces us, that invites us to another capacity of trusting. And, and I would suggest this is really worth looking into. Very, very important. And then Ajahn Shah went on to talk about the third level of trust, which he said is the, the level of the Arahant, the fully liberated being that no longer has any inclination to control, to manipulate, no clinging whatsoever, there's total unobstructed awareness and unobstructed faith, unobstructed trust. Their, their relationship with life is one of complete trusting in the ever-present reality of the way it is. 
And so this formulation of trust I personally found very inspiring and as I said this evening I'd like to particularly consider this uh, second level of, of, of trust or faith which one could, one might refer to as, as verified faith. And particularly one reason why I think it's worth considering is that if you do experience some significant opening uh, into awareness that's new and changes your fundamental relationship with life, there can be such a flooding of energy and inspiration at the time that maybe you get a little intoxicated and start to think that it's always going to be that way. And that, of course, after a while, takes you to disappointment because uh, then you realise, well, you get used to it. It's not always going to be that way. And what happens at that point is, is very important because if we have not considered the place of faith, of trust, what is quite likely to happen is we'll default to our old habits of conditioning and start thinking about it. We'll start thinking, we'll start wondering. You know, Even, even after some significant shift in, in perception that, that, as I said, is an invitation to change our fundamental relationship to life, we can just revert back to start thinking. And, because we've found our identity, we've been conditioned to find identity in thinking. That's, you know, that's what so much of our early life is all about. You're as good as you can think, basically. Discriminative faculty. Discriminative faculty is, you know, is, the, is everything. And so as you maybe get used to having had some sort of a interesting experience of some sort, and then you start thinking, well, what am I supposed to do with it now? Where am I supposed to be going with this? And am I, am I, have I attained something? Am I a Sotapanna? You know, what a pointless question that is. You know, I would suggest that if you're a sotapanna, well, then just get on with it. If you're not a sotapanna, then don't think about it. You know, but that's what the conditioned mind tends to do. Finding our identity and thinking, then this compulsive proliferation uh, is likely to kick in. Now, the alternative is, actually, we could meet that impulse of restlessness. What do I do now? with actually what we do is we trust. And that's different. That is very different. Instead of we default to the old deluded self's motivation to control and manipulate and figure it out and understand what to do next, you say, I don't know what to do next. What do you do when you don't know? You admit you don't know and you trust. You have faith, you have confidence. Something shifted. You know, this is this is. It's not the situation it used to be. It's not like you're running around anymore, you know, trying to find out. You know, is this worth doing? You know, if it's the case that you've, you know, you've experienced something new and relevant, then I would I would suggest that the it's uh, really skillful to look into a trusting relationship to that rather than a manipulative relationship to that. Rather than what can I get out of this and what do I need to do next? Yeah. Don't do anything. Yeah. Now the word trust in itself, say, well, what am I trusting in? Well, yes, you could think like that. I'm trusting in that experience or I'm trusting in it. 
But also it's worth considering well, what is a trusting disposition? You know, what is, when, when the heart is in a trusting disposition, when it's in a doubting disposition, what's a trusting disposition like? Being, it's an orientation of heart to being oriented with trust rather than oriented with controlling, doubting her. So there's an image that I, I've sometimes spoken about which I, I, I find useful myself and uh, encourage other people to consider that if you have had some sort of a significant shift in your experience of the possibility of being awareness itself, you know, rather than being caught up in the content of awareness, you know, what is the experience of falling back into awareness itself? If you have had some sort of an experience, then I like to think of it as being like you've got an appointment to meet the Buddha and now you're sitting in the Buddha's waiting room. Before it was like you were running around saying, is there a Buddha or where's the Buddha and how do I get an appointment to see the Buddha and you don't really know. But if you've had some sort of experience whereby you have this, this inner feeling of confidence that you sense in and of itself is trustworthy, then, yeah, I like to think of it as, as being like you've got an appointment with a Buddha. You're sitting in the Buddha's waiting room. And what do you do when you sit there? Yeah. How do you behave when you're sitting in the Buddha's waiting room? I, I find that a helpful image. Because some of the things we get up to, it's, it's almost as if you like pounding on the Buddha's door and demanding an interview, arrogant, demanding realisation. So, well, if you've got an appointment to see the Buddha, well, why not just, you know, why not just sit there? Why not just sit there? Well, one reason is it's boring. Before, when you didn't know what you're doing, you didn't know if there's anything worth doing, you're busy running around looking for something to do, looking for meaning in life, looking for something to make you feel good about life. You know, what's the meaning of life? What's the point of all of this? You know, should I be a Hindu? Should I be a Buddha? Should I be a something? We're busy wanting to be something. Well, after you had an insight which introduces you to the possibility of you don't have to be anything, well, I would suggest trust in that. You don't have to be anything. And then what happens is, yeah, as I said, it can get very boring sitting in the Buddha's waiting room. There's no hello magazines or <laughs> whatever, resurgence magazines or Buddha Dhamma magazine, whatever you're like reading. And there's nothing. It's just sitting there. You get restless. And, and after a while, maybe you find that it's one of the things that happens is that um, it's, like, uh, it's like this guy called Mara comes and sits down next to you and, and starts telling you that you're wasting your time sitting there. You should be doing something. You, know, you should be striving. You should be, you know, you've got to be getting enlightened. In other words, that's what happens when... If we don't know how to choose to simply trust, if we don't have a feeling for conscious faith, mindful faith that we can choose to turn to and abide in, then when these thoughts come up, like maybe you're wasting your time, you should be doing something. We can get pulled into that. Yeah, because you know, there's one thing I really can't stand is like feeling like I'm not getting anywhere. 
You know, I love the feeling of getting somewhere. You know, deluded self really gets off on developing, on growth and very tempting, delicious possibilities. But from the perspective of practice, if we've already had a taste of the benefit of letting go, then really what we should be doing is exercising that over and over again. Instead of being pulled into this idea of I've got to do something, as tempting as that can appear, what about just actually feeling the feeling of I've got to do something? this, This momentum of... This momentum of this addiction to becoming. You know, the Buddha was very aware of it. You know, it's not like this is just something that compulsive neurotic Westerners suffer from. This is, you know, this is this has been around for eons. You know. Becoming something, always becoming power tanha, always becoming, craving to become something more. It feels so delicious from the perspective of deluded ego. Now, if we have a sense, or if we investigate the place of faith, of trusting. You know, we've, we've got a counterforce here. Yes, there's this momentum. I want to become something. I want to develop. I want to build on my insight. I want to be... You know, what is that? What does that feel like? If we have a feeling for faith, you say, well, trust in awareness itself. Fall back into awareness and feel like you want to do something. You know. We don't have to follow it. We don't have to follow the addiction of becoming the Buddha, the Buddha pointed out you know, all becoming is suffering. Yeah. It's, it's just born out of restlessness and it feeds restlessness. It just goes on and on and on. But if we have confidence in the power of awareness itself, there may be the possibility that we can actually let go a little bit of this momentum of becoming and just feel what it feels like. And not buy into the idea, Mara's argument. You know, Mara is really tricky, really convincing. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to do something, you've got to strive, you've got to get somewhere. You know, Being born as a human being, precious human birth. And yeah, yeah, it's all true, but it is. But if we buy into this compulsive doing all the time, yeah, is that the way to really meet our confusion? Or another one of Mara's arguments is that um, you don't have to do anything. If he doesn't win you over with this idea you've got to do something, you'll try to think, oh, you don't have to do anything. Just sit back, chill, put your feet up, you know, go to sleep, you know. Well, what happens? You go to sleep and the Buddha comes out looking for you, into you, (laughs) and you're sound asleep. (laughs) When the Buddha didn't say you don't have to do anything. He also pointed out, don't be caught up in becoming. Don't get caught up in becoming, don't get caught up in doing, but don't fall asleep. What are we supposed to do? The Buddha was very clear, actually, there is an effort to be made. And he's very, very specific about the different types of effort that need to be made. So, you know, if this thought comes into the mind that, oh, you don't have to do anything, don't worry about precepts, you know, don't worry about making any effort anymore, you've had this insight now, there's nothing to do, love and light, yeah, and all the rest of it, you know, just take it easy. Uh, and they're like, you know, the, sometimes the, the non-dual community, some of them get, you know, get pretty defensive about, you know, the idea that you have to do some practice. And Well, maybe from the perspective of being in that state of openness, 
Yeah, maybe there was a sense of the absolute okayness of everything. There never was anything wrong. There's nothing wrong now and there never will be anything wrong from that perspective and that reality and that moment. But if, as is usually the case for most of us probably, that if we ever do have such an experience, it doesn't last. That openness, that degree of aliveness and vitality, we don't have what it takes to stay as that and consciousness, the heart contracts down and we become the solid substantial somebody again. And what we've now got is a memory of something happening. And from this perspective, it's not appropriate to be going on and saying, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's nobody here, so I'm not going to do any practice. That's a thought, the idea that I don't have to do any practice, based on a memory. But the Buddha had talked very, uh, very clearly about the different types of effort that need to be made, and and it's wise to commit this to memory. The four right efforts, probably all of you are aware of the, the Buddha talked about the effort to give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. The effort to give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. The effort to protect already arisen wholesome states of mind. The effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of mind. And the effort to protect against the arising of as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind. Yeah, uh, to, you know, to really you know, write those down, those four right efforts. And so what does that actually mean in my case? What does it mean to protect the already arisen wholesome states of mind? Yeah. What does it mean to protect the faith that was born out of a moment of insight? Yeah. How do we protect that? What sort of effort do we make? How do we... How do we feel for this new quality of sadha or confidence or trust that, that we've been invited into? So the idea that we don't have to do any practice is something to recognize. Also, uh, you know, Mara you know, might come along with you know, ideas about how uh, it shouldn't be this way. When you hear thoughts like that, you want to be as quick as you can and say, oh, that's, hello, Mara, how are you doing? <laughs> it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. You know, this mood shouldn't be this way. You know, I've been practicing long. I've had enough awareness. I've had enough insight. I shouldn't be having, I shouldn't be getting lost anymore. I shouldn't. When we hear should or shouldn't, we want to be very quick. To say, oh, that's, that sounds like Mara to me. That's, that's Mara talking. Yeah, yeah. The teacher shouldn't be this way. The tradition shouldn't be this way. And so then we get into imagining. We use imagination. We get so restless, we start imagining how it should be. I should be like this. I should be open and aware and radiant all the time. Hmm. Like that moment or two that I experienced or whatever. It should be like that. It should be like that all the time. I should have made better progress. And this leads to more restlessness. So this is another one of Mara's arguments. You know, it shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't be this way. You know, when you get caught up in anger, you, know, you shouldn't be this way. You get caught up in fear. You shouldn't be this way. 
Now, if we had faith, if we had confidence and trust alive within us, trust and confidence born out of our experience, and we turn to that, then maybe we can catch that in that moment. It shouldn't be, ah, yeah, that's interesting. And we catch and see it for what it is. Restlessness. Distracting ourselves yet again. Compulsive distraction. All these compulsive distracting ourselves from the sense of restlessness. Whereas faith or trust can help us abide, can lead us towards the abiding of awareness itself. But if we don't catch it, well then... You know, we just get caught up in that whole momentum. Then we start reading more. You know, if we're sitting in the Buddha's waiting room, it's so boring there. Maybe we, I don't know, we get our, we get one of our friends to smuggle in our Kindle or something, and you know, <laughs> your ebook reader. I mean, you can start reading, start reading about great masters. And you can read about the great forest masters. You know, Ajahn Man and. Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Chah, these great forest masters, and then you start looking around and say, oh, Ajahn Sumato, he's got an iPad, you know. I mean, God, he, you know, Ajahn Sumato's got an iPad. I'm sure Ajahn Mun wouldn't have an iPad, or <laughs> Ajahn Menendo's got an Android phone, and oh, God, Ajahn Chah wouldn't have an Android phone, and I don't know. Or you, <laughs> you can start imagining how your teacher should be, or how your tradition should be. You know, how the monastery, how the community you're part of should be. Rather than appreciating, rather than a joyous, grateful appreciation for where practice has brought us to and this extraordinarily fortunate circumstance that we're all in, we just buy into the discontentment and the restlessness. And, and we can get off on it because it's exciting. Being discontented and criticising is really exciting. It's much better than the boredom of sitting there with nothing happening. And not knowing what you're supposed to do now. You read about the ancient Tibetan mystic saints, read about Milarepa, and Milarepa, he used to live on nettles. And look at these monks, look at this monastery here. I mean, look at the meal today Burmese cuisine, Thai cuisine. I mean, there's so much food. It was just like every restaurant in Newcastle brought their best food to the monastery. You know, it's not like Milarepa living on nettles. You know, that's what real, real meditators practice. You know, or, or <laughs> Saint Francis, Saint Francis. Look at those monks wearing their pure cotton robes, dyed just the right colour. Saint Francis used to wear those beggars' rags, and we can idealise about the spiritual life. And it's exciting, very interesting, idealizing. Well, of course, idealization's got its place. You know, there's nothing wrong with idealization. It can motivate us to, you know, you can idealize about how you could be and you might take on, you know, some exercise routine or some decent diet or take up doing yoga or qigong and you know, improve yourself. Idealization has got its place. Imagination it can motivate us. But it's a kind of a synthetic energy. It's not the real thing. It's like, uh, it's like still having an L plate. You know, you're still a learner. You, know, you haven't got a full license yet. Or, or like, like drinking too much coffee. You know, a little bit of coffee is okay. But when you're really running on caffeine the whole time... It's synthetic. And so this is worth recognizing, the the distraction of idealization. 
And what's really called for from, you know, if we're serious about our practice, if we're serious about honouring moments of insight that have arisen, then what's really called for is letting go of all of our strategies, letting go of our, the temptation to idealise about how life should be and open up to this. Whatever this is, you know, however wonderful and agreeable it might be, or however utterly frustrating and irritating, we're willing to, we're willing, and this is what, this is what faith can give us, a willingness to learn from this, whatever this is. So, so if we start to discover this, if we have this sort of willingness, this consideration of faith, of trust, using that as a resource, rather than manipulating and strategizing our way to what we think is liberation, then it's like you, know, you recognize Mara. Say, Mara, this is Mara. Mara is all these distractions, all these habits of distraction that we have, doing something, not doing something, getting distracted. And, and our interest, our motivation in practice is, as I said, trusting in awareness itself and a willingness to embrace even the, even the, the agony, the agony of frustration, disappointment, the agony, the burning of desire. I mean, like the desire to know, you really want to know, the desire to do, the desire to get, the desire to hold on to. From a perspective of practice at this level, there needs to be actually a willingness to, and this is a question we need to ask ourselves, is do we have the awareness that is sufficiently free from compulsive picking and choosing, compulsive judging, compulsive preferencing, do we have the awareness that is willing to feel the burning, really feel the burning without collapsing into becoming burnt? Yeah. And then feeling sorry for ourselves. Yeah. Do we have the do we have the agility of awareness? Do we have the agility of awareness that means that when desire comes over and over and over again in all its many different forms, do we have the agility to go with it? Yeah. To feel it? Now, I would suggest that if we recognise the potential of trust, of faith, letting go of our conditioned tendencies to try and control and strategize our our way to liberation, modestly trust in awareness itself, have faith, then that serves to strengthen this kind of awareness. And we don't have to be afraid of fear. We don't have to be afraid of desire. You know, waves of, of desire to become you know, the, the fear of getting lost you know, the fear of wasting the fear of getting lost the fear of, of, of wasting this opportunity it can be a very real very real fear but instead of following that momentum and the outflow of following the fear and then getting lost and getting caught up and then strategizing ourselves back to feeling confident again, how about we just trust in the capacity to simply be aware of the feeling of fear? 
not be afraid of fear and feel it. It takes a lot of trust, a lot of strength to do that. The momentum is to follow that. Falling in love might be wonderful. It might be incredibly inconvenient, especially if you're not prepared for it. The falling in love with an object, with a thing, with a person, with a holiday, the idea of something, falling in love with this, this, the flooding of, of, of beautiful feeling that comes with it. The normal impulse is to follow that beautiful feeling out and then, and then drape it onto, project it onto the object that triggered this loving feeling. And then we feel we've got to own that to get it back again. Well, how about if there's the capacity for trusting in awareness itself, how about meeting that feeling, the beautiful feeling that comes with falling in love, and tracing it back to the source, instead of always going out after fear, after desire, to return to the source. What is it? What is it that's behind all this that's manifesting? Out of what? Out of what is all this arising and ceasing? So the agility to the agility of awareness, the freedom of awareness to meet these waves of desire, like you know, waves of you know, wanting a little kesakukan. I mean, you know, as nice as kesakukan is, you know, (laughs) that's not a big deal compared to you know other forms of desire. Desire. To understand, you know, it's like these waves, these momentum waves of energy that we can have. It's like if you've ever, if you've ever been body surfing. You know, I grew up with often spending time on the beach in New Zealand. The east coast of New Zealand faces onto the Pacific, and you get some really serious breakers coming in there, and spend a lot of time in the surf and. And, you know, when you're in a, in a one, a, a big wave, I mean, can you imagine trying to change the wave? <laughs> you can't, that's, that's, that's pathetic. Yeah. Well, that's what we're up against when these waves of desire, the idea, this puny, pathetic idea, this little deluded sense of self thinks that it can change and manipulate, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless against this force. Yeah. And so how do we meet this force? We trust and go with it. So the skill is then how to go with it, how to meet life. Instead of depending upon our teachers and our techniques and our strategies, instead of depending upon these outer sources for inspiration, we trust in that which is here. And then that faith maybe equips us to some degree, or hopefully with increasing ability, to be able to meet life. So we learn from life. We learn from it with a a willingness, a willingness to to get increasingly honest about the tricks that we get up to. To be stuck and identified in obstructed awareness... So long as we're identified and lost in obstructed awareness, compulsively picking and choosing, taking sides with liking and disliking, so long as we're caught in that, then actually we should be struggling. 
we should be confused. Yeah. But so often what happens is when we're struggling and we're confused, there's this feeling it shouldn't be this way. So, yeah. As Ajahn Chah said once when I was, I was whinging and whining and complaining to him and saying, it shouldn't be this way, it, shouldn't, it wasn't supposed to work out like this. And he, he just looked at me and said, well, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Yeah. This cause is supposed to be this way. You know, when we're confused and, and struggling, we're supposed to be confused and struggling because we're still identified as obstructed awareness. We're still compulsively picking and choosing. We don't know how to simply trust in awareness itself. And so I would suggest that if we make something out of this, we really consider this, this level of trust, born out of trusting and experience. In the beginning, at the level of initial faith and initial trust, it was trust in an idea or an intuition, something out there. But now we're talking about trust, confidence in an experience. It's a totally different phenomenon. And if we choose to make something out of that and, and turn to that, then hopefully what we'll find is an increasing capacity to be honest with ourselves, as I said, when we're getting up to our tricks, when we're getting caught up in doing, getting caught up in not doing, you know, there's something to do, there's nothing to do, idealising about how life should be or shouldn't be, all of these tricks that we get up to, all of these compulsive distractions of avoidance of the totally appropriate consequence of our being caught up in limited awareness. Suffering is appropriate. You know, the idea that it shouldn't be this way, this is just another, another game that we play with ourselves. Suffering is appropriate when we're caught up and identified as limited being. And so with faith, hopefully, it'll give us an increased ability to be more honest with ourselves and see when we're getting up to our tricks. And also, hopefully, it will uh, equip us with the, the modesty to... Uh, remind us that most of the time we don't know what we're doing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the reality. The reality is most of the time we don't know what we're doing. And so trusting is the appropriate response. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.